Let's begin, if we can, with a, a few things. They may seem plain, they may seem obvious, but I think they ought to be restated uh, when approaching a passage like this. I'm going to say three kind of introductory things, if I may. Firstly, we come to God's word with the appropriate humility. That should be said. Secondly, we come to God's word recognising the supreme priority. I'm going to spell these out at the moment. Uh, and thirdly, understanding its complete authority as well. Let me just run through those quickly. We come to God's word with an appropriate humility, or we ought to. Too often folks, when dealing with these kind of subjects, sensitive subjects, speak with a, a level of arrogance, but also a level of ignorance as well. And that is true of people from all perspectives and all understandings and applications of this passage and others. And therefore I think, you know, verses like Proverbs 30, I might hope, will humble us as we begin. <clears throat> Proverbs 30, verse 18 says this. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. Uh, what is meant by that is simply this. We just don't fully get each other <coughs> at all. And, and therefore, we, we, we must come to this and say, we never will. It's arrogance to suggest that we will. And therefore, come with a sense of humility as we approach a passage like this. We must come acknowledging uh, our own lack of understanding. We are treading on ground that is minefield-like, isn't it? Now, this is such a sensitive issue. Therefore... I acknowledge that whatever I say in the next 30 minutes will be utterly inadequate. But also, whatever I say, however sensitively I say it, will be heard by some people here in a completely different way. And maybe even offence will be taken. I can only apologise for that if that is the case. And therefore, as we begin, try not to listen to me. Try, as we look at this, I'm trying to point you toward the God's word and, and, and test my words through those words. Have the appropriate humility as you approach God's word. Secondly, come, we come to God's word recognising the supreme authority of God's word. Ash has very brilliantly, I think, shown us over these opening weeks uh, within 1 Timothy uh, that it, there is a priority, very clearly, within this letter and within the whole Bible narrative. Paul writes to this church, this young church in Ephesus. Uh, he's entrusted the leadership of that church to Timothy and the elders there. But the priority has been, amidst all the troubles in chapter 1, all the false teaching, all the wranglings that are going on amongst the people, the priority has been the gospel of grace, hasn't it? The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And likewise, we must, we must, in all these circumstances, all these what we might call secondary issues, Keep the primary priority of the gospel in our hearts and our minds. Deliberately and carefully, we must watch ourselves so that we don't inflate what may be a personal interest above the primacy of the gospel. Thirdly, introductory point, we come to God's word understanding its complete authority. We cannot, if we are Christians, approach a passage like this with that slightly cut-and-paste attitude. Simply because we find it so opposed to the culture uh, uh, around us, contemporary society. And I hope you'll see that in a, few, in a few moments that this was, if you like, as opposed to society then as it would be now. 
If we understand that the whole Bible is authoritative and useful for teaching, as Paul mentions in one of his other letters, we must be careful that we don't come to this and dismiss it and sort of go, oh, it's misogynistic, kind of a cultural antiquity that we want to get rid of. We must come to God's word, understanding its complete authority. Have you ever noticed when you're in discussions, maybe with friends, maybe with family, maybe colleagues, and you, you know, you, it comes on to issues of the Bible. Have you ever noticed that really the argument always boils down to this? That is the authority of God's word. It's not the understanding of the secondary issues. It's always how do you sit under its authority? You either understand the Bible as authoritative on all matters, or you seek to impose your own thoughts, your own views onto the Bible, reading it as you wish. I remember sitting in a youth group uh, Bible study. I was doing some research whilst at uh, Theological College, and um, it happened to be a peer-led youth group. And they got to this passage, uh, of all things, and the delegated leader of that night uh, opened it up, and they, someone else read it out, and they literally all laughed. And the way that they got around it was saying, oh, that's a bit old school, isn't it? And then they started talking about songs. And that was it. They just went, poof, dismiss. If God's word is authoritative, we can't read this and, and our default be to think, how can I possibly get around it? Our default thinking must be, how must I understand this? Apply this? Live under this? Three quick and I hope helpful introductory pointers as we dive into this passage, this slightly interesting passage. Let's go to it though. Two points, hope they're simple. Alongside, I guess, which will be some applications which will be less simple and uh, maybe interesting. I'm going to leave a lot of time. I know I'm not dealing with every single issue in this passage in the next 25 minutes, okay? Um, I know there's going to be stuff that's open-ended. I want that to be the case because I want us to be able to have a question and answer time afterwards, okay? That's where we're heading. Firstly, first point I think that Paul addresses in this passage is this. He's addressing um, what really is disruptive behaviour. You see that on your outlines? Disruptive behaviour. Let's refresh our minds, though, if we can, verses 8 to 10. I'll read those again. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also... Want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, what I'm going to do in each point is to essentially state the obvious. Get it out of the way, okay? Look, I'm going to state a few obvious points and then we'll get into some detail if we can. Two obvious things to begin with. Now, the problems that we see Paul addressing here uh, in this letter are specific to Ephesus, the church there. Now, Corinth had similar issues. You read about those in 1 Corinthians 11, for example, but they're not exactly the same. Secondly, the context is also clear. Uh, it is the meetings, it is the gatherings of God's people, the, um, of the church, that were being disrupted. That is the context of which Paul is addressing here. Uh, both by men, the disruption came in verse 8, and women were disrupting, as we see in verse 9 and 10. Different ways, but it is that disruption which is the issue, the context here. So let's see what's going on, if you like, in this young church in Ephesus. 
Verse 8, let's deal with the men first. That's, it leads us to the men. Now, let's think about what's going on. The traditional posture for prayer, uh, Jewish prayer, was adopted by many within the early church. They would lift up their hands, their palms to the air, um, as they stood in prayer. That would be the regular way of, go, um, of praying in the gathering, in the church. And it was symbolic of an act that was saying, I am dependent upon you, God. I am coming before you, if you like. And, uh, and there's also, it's representing a purity before God as you come repentant, clean, with clean hands before God, essentially is the picture. So they lifted up their holy or clean hands symbolically toward God. Now the problem was, as we see, that the men in Ephesus did not have those symbolically clean hands. They had dirty hands, if you like. That is, they probably prayed, but it was, like, it was punctuated, as you see, with their grumbling and their arguments. There was a lack of forgiveness, I guess, of grace amongst the men in the church. And Paul is highlighting this, I guess, to say, come on, sort this out. Deal with this. This is a disruption within the church, within the gathering. Repent, essentially. Now, the behaviour amongst the men in the church was disruptive. Let's move on. Let's see the disruption of the women. Secondly, in verse 9 and 10. What's the issue here? Now, the disruption of the women seems to be centred around what they wear. How they adorn themselves or dress themselves. And I want to be really, really clear here at this point. Notice that Paul takes for granted that women will adorn themselves. By that, we must see that there is no place for neglect, drabness in what women ought to wear. As one commentator put, quite old commentator, simply said, no frumpiness please in the church. <laughs> Which I quite liked. But how? How are women to adorn themselves? Again, it's fairly simple. Paul calls women to dress with decency and propriety. Basically, not too extravagantly, and almost certainly the younger ladies within the church would have dressed provocatively as well, because the words decency and propriety are used elsewhere and have a sexual connotation. These women, if you like, were dressing within the gathering of the church to lure men, have power over the men within the church. I don't need to spell how, out how that works. You know how it works. So Paul isn't saying women must be boring in how, what they wear, unflattering, no. But he is saying that what the women were wearing in the Christian meetings in Ephesus was less than helpful, shall we say. It was destructive. Now, given the specifics of the dress he actually mentions in verse 9, we, we might actually begin to say, well, what was all the fuss about? Because that's us with our cultural kind of lenses looking through. But we must understand the times again, a, a little moment See if you like trying to understand what was going on at the time. From about, uh, what commentators say about kind of 50 to 40 BC, within the Roman Empire, there was, a, there was a, quite an uprising of kind of women's rights, women's liberation, if you like, in that culture. Women dressed more provocatively in those times to essentially say, look, we have now a social standing and a, a, a sexual independence as well beyond what we've known before in this culture. And dress was the way of expressing that, if you like. And in particular, these women put their hair up. 
They had these huge high wigs. I had a long quote about it, but it was a bit ridiculous. Um, and they put gold ornaments and pearls in there and all this kind of stuff. It was the thing of the time. And apparently, men just fell over with this. They just thought this was utterly alluring. It was kind of like the Victorian woman's knee. It caused a big fuss in the church in that time. And what Paul is saying is simple. And it's very much like the poem of uh, Proverbs 31 with the woman of noble character. He says there, as he does here in verse 10 to the women in Ephesus, he says that there's a loveliness of character. They ought to adorn themselves with good deeds. That is so much more important. It is more beautiful than the loveliness of form which they were trying to adorn themselves with the clothes and the hair and so on. Now sadly, the women in Ephesus had forgotten this. They were more show than substance, as I heard this week. As a result, they were disruptive in the gatherings, in the church, as they gathered on a Sunday. And what Paul is saying here is not that um, anger is exclusively a male issue and kind of you know, self-indulgence in dress is an exclusive female issue. That is not what he is saying. He's simply addressing the disruption within that particular church here in Ephesus and he's encouraging more godly behaviours in both groups. Now, what about us at this stage? We all know where we will individually tend to be more disruptive. We, we know where we, where we are. Don't be naive to think that this does not occur anymore. Even if you just take the dress one for a moment. I remember playing at, um, I was playing the guitar and band at this youth event. It was a few years back now. And, and a lovely girl, I've known this girl for, for many, many years. She's part of a youth group, or I know the youth leader. A lovely girl. It was a hot day and she was there. Being on stage looking down at that point was not the most helpful place to be. And I was very thankful for my very godly um, female keyboard player who went and had a little chat with the, with the young girl down at the front. And it was a very gentle kind of chat. And this girl went away. She did the right thing. She changed her outfit. She was no longer disruptive to any of the band members. And we were all incredibly thankful for that. She adorned herself appropriately, if you like, both in her dress, but also in her good deeds, her kindness to the men. What a wonderful thing. So as we've seen with men, so too with women. But the detail of application changes from culture to culture. For this, will, I guess this will be less about us lifting hands in the air in prayer, or pearls or gold. In, I'm not seeing any of it right now, but you know, I, I doubt that's the kind of the specific issue for us today. But just as quarrelsome men needed to be reconciled, so did the showy women needed to be more focused on their good deeds, that they be adorned with them primarily. Now, what Paul then goes on to do is a matter of great debate, I think. Lots of ink has been spilled on these next five verses. Of course, he spelled out now a very specific Ephesian issue. So does that mean what follows is again a specific Ephesian issue? Can we therefore remove ourselves from the application of verse 11 to 15? Now, what scholars generally agree on is this, that Paul often is, uh, in his letters addresses a particular problem, a particular issue within a church, uh, and then goes on to make a more general, principled, uh, universal application of that. I'll give you an example in 1 Corinthians 6. 
uh, he writes to the Corinthian church with an awful um, and terrible uh, kind of sexual issue within the church that is going on in 1 Corinthians 6. But then he goes on to make a universal application of that, a general teaching point for all that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So 1 Corinthians there, the teaching is against an exceptional impurity, but it leads to a general teaching point for all on that subject. And many would argue, pretty much exclusively, that the same is going on here within 1 Timothy. He does it again and again throughout his letters. I give you numerous examples. Same pattern. Specific disruptive Ephesian behaviour leading to a general teaching point about disordered leadership within the church. Now we'll see why that is uh, so important in a moment as we dig into the text. But let's read, if we can, let's go to our second point, disordered leadership, and let's just refresh our minds. We'll read verse 11 to 14. These are really important verses, difficult verses. But let's refresh our minds of them as we dive into them. Verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission... I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. As I said before, a few basic, uh, obvious points to begin with. Firstly, the point seems to be made to women in general, not just wives, as I think is clear in verse 11. Secondly, quietness. It seems to be the undergirding principle of all of these verses, in fact, the whole chapter. Look at verse 11, it's there. It ends also verse 12. But if you flip back to verse 2 of the chapter, you'll see there the same quiet life, the same word is used there, that it, where, where Paul encourages the whole church towards that quietness um, in prayer and thanksgiving. Now, they see, the fundamental principle is not that if a woman speaks within the gathering, uh, you know, both male and female together, that all the men should turn around and go, shh, really quickly. No, that is not the principle here. The fundamental principle of quietness, as it is in 1 Corinthians 11 as well, is that of order. Hence, it is parallel with submission there in verse 11. Now, unfortunately, down through the ages, churches have taken this to mean that women just must sit in absolute silence. 1 Corinthians just uh, makes that completely unclear. Because in 1 Corinthians, the women are to to pray and to prophesy. They they spoke evidently within the meetings. And yet the same phrases are used. Silence, it means order within that gathering. So the point that Paul is making here, above everything else, is that of order. Within these verses, there are two commands and two prohibitions, as we see. That is, there there are actions that are forbidden for the sake of the order in the church. Look at them. There's a command about learning with a prohibition about teaching. There's a command about submission with a prohibition about authority. Now, important again, that those things are linked. They are not two separate kind of teaching points. Paul is not saying here that women are never to have any permission to teach. Nor is Paul saying that women have no permission to assume authority. 
Looking back in history, I don't think Paul would have had anything to say against, for example, Margaret Thatcher being the Prime Minister of his country, or maybe Hillary Clinton in the future uh, being President in America. Nor is the Queen as the constitutional head of this country. I don't think that is not the issue here. But let's have a look at that issue of submission first, if we may. Now, in numerous places in the Bible, Peter, uh, in his writing, 1 Peter 2, uh, Jesus in his teaching, Paul throughout his letters on a number of occasions, states various orders of relationships in the world, and it is spelled out for the good of the people of the world. So, you can see that in Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 2. Citizens, for example, are called to submit to government and the law of the land. Yeah, we've seen those on a number of occasions. Children are called to submit to their parents and wives to their husbands. And likewise here, Paul is calling the church family to live in a particularly ordered way for the good of the witness of the gospel and the watching world. And we often perversely uh, struggle with these ordered relationships, but whether we are a child, a citizen, or a wife, or a woman in the church, no role or lack of role devalues any individual before God. You, as a citizen, for example, are no less of a person before God and the watching world than David Cameron or the Queen. And I think we know that. I don't think we challenge that. We don't think, oh, I don't look at David Cameron on news and think, he's so much more of a person in God's eyes than I am. He has a different role, but in value terms, you don't look at him, I don't think, I've never heard any of you speak of that, and say, oh, he's more of a person in God's... No, I don't think you even feel that or know that. Likewise, you don't look at the children in the church and think they are less individuals before God and before the watching world than the parents or you as a child of your parents, you don't look to your parents and go, of course you're more of a human being in God's eyes than I am. You don't think that, do you? No one ever questions that, I don't think. Of course not. Genesis 1 is clear, as Genesis 1.27, we are made in the image of God. Men, women, children, parents, every one of us. And therefore we have equal value before him, and equal value before the world, and equal value in the church. But it is this relationship between authority and submission where, if you like, the heat raises. And the issue between teaching and learning that Paul is speaking of here. And the problem that we face, and I guess they faced in the church in Ephesus, is this. Is that teaching offices within the church, that is being a Bible teacher, uh, being a pastor or a minister, whatever you want to call that... These roles have strong associations with authority, sadly even ability, and are often spoken about in value terms. Therefore they are often inappropriately placed above other roles within the church, in terms of value. It isn't that Paul is against women's teaching. Some of the women were to teach us, you can look at, for example, in Titus 2, the older women were to teach the younger women. But Paul is clear, I think, here, as elsewhere, within the mixed adult gatherings of the church, as in Ephesus, women were not to teach. But how do we know if this principle of good order remains? Is this not a hair and pearls issue? 
a specific prohibition for that culture in place. Now, you might argue, as some do, they say, well, the women at that time were uneducated. And therefore, what Paul is saying here is a cultural wisdom which says, oh, well, because only the men were educated, they should be the ones who should teach. Now, that is just historic nonsense. As you look into the Roman, Greco-Roman Empire, you see women at that time were the most educated uh, of all history, and especially at a place like Ephesus, that would have been very, very abundantly clear. Secondly, people argue and say, well, were the women, were the women uh, false teachers, the false teachers of chapter 1? And therefore, again, it's a wisdom call that Paul is making for that church and saying, we don't want the women to teach because... They're the ones who are the false teachers. Well, no, again, none of the terms that are used of the, of the false teachers uh, are, are written in the feminine. They're all in the masculine term. And therefore, it cannot be them. So have a look at verse 13. See, it, it begins with the connective four, doesn't it? That is what, is he, what he's about to say is the explanation for what he has said or what he has prohibited in verse 11 and 12. He doesn't just say, oh, you know, I don't want anyone to teach, that's it, full stop, not having a conversation. No, he, he goes on and gives a reason why. This is his justification for the order he calls for in the church. And Paul is stating this good order for the church family, but he purposely does so from the Genesis account, particularly the creation account there. We see in verse 13 he states the created order, the creation order, and in verse 14, he's showing the consequences when the order is turned upside down. Again, please let's be clear. He is not suggesting here that all women are gullible and easily deceived. He isn't suggesting there is any less value to women because that value is shown in the creation account equally with men. Genesis 1.27. He's simply saying, and I wanted to turn here because I find it much more, much more helpful. I'm going to turn to a lady. Um, Carrie Sandham, who's a good friend of mine and I used to work with up in uh, Mayfair. She wrote a book, and I think it's an excellent book, Different by Design, God's Blueprint for Men and Women. She is, uh, she's got a, a theology degree from Cambridge. She's an incredibly bright lady. She writes this on this particular area, on this verse. Nevertheless, his downfall does serve as an example that women should learn from. That when they reject the created order and take on roles that are not appropriate for them, they are vulnerable to Satan's deception. In exercising authority over men, they forfeit both the leadership and protection of men and lay themselves open to all kinds of problems. They not only take on roles that are inappropriate, but by doing so, effectively prevent men from exercising their God-given role. In other words, sin has consequences. And when God's designated ordering of creation is ignored, there is chaos and all manner of other repercussions. Essentially what Paul is spelling out for us is that there is a deep complementarity of men and women that is to happen within the leadership of churches. And when that is appreciated, whether it's adopted into our lives corporately and individually, our relationships everywhere... It is good. It is good for us. It is good for the church. Because it is God's good way. Gifted women are called to teach in a number of different situations. Both here in Christchurch Hillsfield and the worldwide. And I thank God often 
Please believe me when I say that. I thank God often for the godliness and the humility of God honouring women in this church and their view of church order. And I thank God for women who have influenced me and taught me throughout my life. I think of my gran, who is an amazing woman who taught so many other women and funded numerous women missionaries around the world, many who you have read biographies of. Men in, many, uh, men in history have said some really stupid things and cruel things about women. And that is true even in the church. Paul never says a derogatory thing about women. Jesus never does. He honours them beyond all others. Paul's argument here is grounded in the created order. It is an underlying creation principle that we must try to live by and honour. We must be sympathetic and understanding because we know, given the tension, we know this is incredibly difficult. I know I've skirted over those things. We can talk about them in a moment. But to finish, let's turn to verse 15 because it's an odd one, isn't it? Let's read it. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Now again, let me clear with a few things. Paul is not saying that women will be saved, that is physically saved through childbirth. Women die, will today, through childbirth. Also, I don't think he'd be referring to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many, many, many commentators do say that. Well, I think it's about 50-50. Though, of course, we are saved through Christ, the action of his birth specifically would be a kind of a random kind of pulling out here, um, given the context. I just don't think that is what is primarily being said here. But I think his point is simply this, and I'll just apply it rather than what you call exegete, explain the passage. I think he's simply meaning this, because I want to say this specifically to mums. Being a mum is no less influential or valuable than being a church pastor. Being a mum is no less valuable or no less influential than being a church pastor. Paul is not saying that all women will be mothers or need to be mothers and we recognise and know the hurt of that. All he's trying to do is regain good order within the church. Women, not all women, but many will have the duty of raising children. And I think what he's saying here is when you bring good order back into a church and into a family, know that privilege. Know that joy. It is no less valuable. It is not a second-rate ministry. Proverbs 31 says the same. In the bringing up of a child, a woman is given the rule, the responsibility and the privilege of preaching to her children. In a sense, as Paul says here, for her and for her children, it is, in a sense, a pathway of salvation because they're bringing them up to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a unique role and should be a cherished role. And unfortunately, we're in a world where it is so, so undermined. If you're a mother, don't think you're second rate. These women in Ephesus had an immodesty in their dress. 
And there was an immodesty about the leadership as well within the church. And as a result, what they'd done is they put the reputation of the church at risk. That's why Paul is writing. And they're putting the teaching of the church at risk as well. I think I've said enough. And I'm going to stop there. I'd like you to turn to the people beside you. I, I'm sure there'll be points that you're going to go, wow, did you hear what he said there? Let's get the knives out. Let's throw them in and so on. Um, just chat. See what you think. Um, and we'll have a question and answer time. I'll, I'll probably turn to Ash at that point. That's all right. Um, but um, you landed me in it. I'll land you in it. Okay. Um, turn to the person beside you. You've got a minute. And then we'll just uh, have a few times question and answer.